1: That's BlueNile.com
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Why Would You Tell Me That? It's a podcast. I'm Dave Moore. That's Neil Delamere. You will find the podcast on Instagram. It's at Why Would You Tell Me That? You'll find Neil Delamere on Instagram at Neil Delamere Comedy. You'll find me on Instagram as well. I'm at Dave Today FM. Uh, we are proudly part of the Acast Creator Network and uh, if you are listening to this, wherever you're listening to it, we'd love you give us a follow or a subscribe or whatever the word your particular podcast platform uses. Uh, but the more people we get subscribed to it then the more people can actually find out about the podcast and you get episodes, you'll never miss a trick and we'd love to have you as part of our Lovely. why would you tell me that
2: community and then we finally get enough money to buy the space laser that we've been talking about for so long
0: <laughs> <laughs> It's all about space lasers actually, I don't know what this episode's about because Neil Delimer is leading this episode, and this is what happens every week. one of us is in the dark today it's me and
2: you listener so let's find out what Neil Delimer has in store for us Well, hello, David. I have something very exciting today, and um, in part two we're going to talk. I think to probably our best-known contributor of the series so far, I guess. Oh, yeah. Now, Lara, double Dr. Lara, from a couple of weeks ago, was, is very well-known from her work on eco and um, as a broadcaster. But I think maybe David McWilliams, who needs no introduction to Irish uh, listeners, he's an economist, he's an author, he's a commentator, he's a podcaster, and he's the adjunct professor at Trinity College Dublin in global economics
0: a hell of a set of titles to have. Yes, very long business name. card, huge <laughs> business card. Yeah, he's like Go Go Gadget. Like Gad, you know, remember Inspector Gadget? He goes Go yeah. Go Gadget business card it just unfolds for days.
2: Yeah, basically he writes all those on you know the thing you blow at a birthday party, and it just comes out with him. With that <laughs> that would and actually be quite an interesting <laughs> business card model. Maybe you've stumbled across a niche in the market here, Neil. Write that down. And um, so he needs no introduction to our Irish people. He's also one of the most kind of. Um, in all these surveys, influential economic commentators out there. And he is going to be talking about a time in the world when a tulip bulb costs 20 times more than the annual wage of a good skilled trade, which you want to mention to you last tu-
0: week. Yeah, you said this last week, and obviously the, the joy of this podcast is to uncover this as we go. So even though we give each other a little tease each You're week... You're not allowed to look it up. And I never do. I don't want to. I want to have it this way that we kind of come across it like this. But when you said that, I was just kind of a bit confused, to be honest, going tulip bulb yeah i mean so 20 times more than a skilled workers way i mean that would be would that be a house oh
2: god way more than a house Yeah, way more than a house yeah way more than a house just just think about that for a second a tulip bulb worth more than your gaff i would ram raid a woody's tomorrow (gasps) if that was the case (laughs) Basically, heat would be Robert De Niro going into the Chelsea flower show or bloom with a shovel and that's it. I mean, I, I'm not sure what, uh, what David's going to, how he's going to explain. It. I think it makes Alan Titchmarch Pablo Escobar. I'm not sure, but, <laughs> but, but, but McWilliams is the man to talk to. It,
0: it, it's either him or Jim or Gavin. One of them is definitely the kingpin in this situation. Oh
2: no, yeah, Gavin is probably Medellin. and yes, the other there boy you is what was the what was the other one? Not Bogota. I can't remember what the other one was. Uh, <laughs> Catalina was it? Catalina, Catalina.
0: possibly. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> um, But before we get to that, we we'll do part one, and we have some housekeeping, Dave, to do. Oh now. yeah, people will remember you boasting that you blew a Malteser 24 feet across a shopping centre floor. Hey, world record holder Dave yes. Moore. How I wish you That's my business card. <laughs> yeah, world record. Yes. And for that feat um, uh, your name is in a very special publication, the Sex Offenders Register. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's unrelated. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, He did it, naked. It, uh, <laughs> it was in the middle. It was a bounce castle. It's a long story. Um, no, you're a Guinness World Record holder. So you're in the yep. Guinness Book of Records, as we used to call it. I think it's called Guinness World Records now. So Brian Byrne got in touch with us from Wexford. Now, this, okay. I, I have a theory about this. I think people from smaller places, particularly in Ireland, Know the famous thing that happened in their place, whereas you're from Dublin and lots of things happened in Dublin and you might not be the same.
0: I'm so cosmopolitan, like, I don't even, I'm mostly what happens in Paris and two boroughs of
2: London. <laughs> Shut up, that's you know who is touched up in Tamangos in Port <laughs> That's what you know, at best. <laughs> yeah, oh, that was the corner, that's what we call it <laughs> blue wicked town, that's what we call it. So he knows the things that happen the Wexford, Brian does, and he got in touch with the show and he said, did you know that the idea for the Guinness Book of Records came from Wexford? No, it didn't. It did. And he is right, David. So let me tell you the story. In the 1950s, the uh, MD of Guinness Brewery was a man called, and you're going to like this, Dave, Sir Hugh (laughs) Beaver. Okay. That's a, that's a genuine name because the story of Guinness was created by the writers of Austin Powers, obviously. <laughs> but the boss of Guinness, is, Guinness, is, you have to say that, yeah. uh, was Sir Hugh Beaver. Okay. And he'd replaced Lord Massive Guy and was succeeded by Viscount Deepgat. <laughs> I've, I I maybe maybe please please
0: check, please check the references in this episode to make sure what Neil is saying is correct, because
2: I don't think it is. Okay, so Hugh Beaver was the head. Okay, okay, okay. okay. he, he, spoke, re- he right. really was. Yeah. Okay, no more lies from here on in. So he's in a hunting trip in Wexford in the early 50s, and he and his uh, hosts argue about the fastest game bird in Europe. They're out shooting guns, obviously hunting. It does make it sound like he missed a shot, like he goes bang and then goes... See how fast that was! I'd say that was the fastest game bird in Europe. Yeah. I think, look, Otherwise, Mac I mean,
0: like, I, I my shot was perfect. Uh, it was just that the bird was able to achieve a velocity previously <laughs> unexpected.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if you saw, he had seven wings. I've never even seen <laughs> some sort of griffin or something. I'm not sure. A jet-engined griffin in these parts? <laughs> in Wexford, I mean, I'd expect that from Wicklow, but not all, <laughs> all the way south. So he goes and he looks up to see if he can find in the reference books what's the fastest. I was just about to say because I
0: can't imagine he pulled his smartphone out of his pocket at this point in in uh, cultural history and went, "Let's just check what the fastest game bird." Were. So he would have had to, you know, have stood on that hill and said, "No, the hunting trip is over. We're going back to the library. We're going to get out the
2: reference book and and check what's going on." Well, this is, do you remember for our younger listeners? This is what used to happen. We used to row about things in pubs, and there would be no solution, and it would just be people leaving unsatisfied after a night of shouting at somebody else. I
0: can't tell you how many times I have gone to Mangoes, left Mangoes, gone to my parents' house, gotten the Joy of Knowledge encyclopedia, and gone back into Mangoes and gone, <laughs> there, you see? <laughs> Ethiopia used to be called. Yeah,
2: yeah, I'm right. <laughs> I think Tamangos could sponsor this. We've mentioned him enough now so far <laughs> that maybe they would sponsor us. So they couldn't figure it out, right? And then he kind of just that sits in his head for a while. And a couple of years later, 1954, he remembers this. He has this idea for this Guinness promotion based on settling the idea of pub arguments. Wow. And he gets the two twins, Norris Do You remember he used to be on Record yes. Breakers and uh, Ross mcWhorter his brother, to to look into this him essentially. And they had this business in Fleet Street they were fact-checkers, essentially, for, okay. for Fleet Street Papers. So the two boys put their heads together. Guinness Superlatives was incorporated on the 30th of November. The books were meant to be originally just for nothing, as a big kind of Guinness promotion. And sure. then they went, well, sure, this is this is massive. People love this. And then a few short years later, you, I believe the phrase was, besmirched the integrity <laughs> of <laughs> such a fine tome. But it started in Wexford. You see,
0: and I think at the time when the game bird was the subject of this discussion, Mm. I think Sir Hugh Beaver could see forward into the future when a 20 something year old broadcaster would lie prone on the uh, wooden floor of St. (laughs) Stephen's Green Shopping Centre with selected Malteser in hand chosen for its perfect circumference. And straw, and this was in the days before straws were paper and terrible. It was a proper plastic seal-killing straw. Uh, and he he just he imagined himself there as he stood on the hill as the game bird flew insurmountably fast past his head again. He went, someday a broadcaster <laughs> will blow a Malteser across the floor of a shopping centre and he will be crowned king. And lo and behold. <laughs> yeah. And I am responsible for this entire waste of everybody's time. <laughs> Well, I have to say, it, it does span the generations. Like you're talking about, well, it was the 1950s this began. Yeah. My nine-year-old has been obsessed with Guinness World Records for a long time. And obviously his first introduction was me proudly telling him, hey, I'm Guinness World Record holder, there's me in the book, blah, blah, blah. Yep. You know, you're two days old, we need to know this, it's very important. <laughs> um, Like, he just it, obsesses about it and he goes in and he reads them like, he had come out with the most obscure fact, you know, what did you he's like, guinness book world records of course uh, he's obsessed with a guy called robert uh, wadlow who was the tallest human tallest ever guy. yeah he's yeah and one day we were in a random lego display kind of expo thing in spain on our holidays and he walked in and he came running out almost crying and i was like as in with excitement, I was like, "What's what's what's up?" And he goes, "There's a there's a life size Robert Wadlow Lego." And he went in and I got his picture taken. But obviously, the picture's terrible because I had to fit him and Robert <laughs> Wadlow in the picture. So it's like nine foot something and a tiny four year old or whatever he was at the time. Uh, but yeah, but like I can see how this you know this did take off and get passed down through generations, and even now with. The entirety of human knowledge in your smartphone, in your pocket, or on his tablet or whatever, he still goes to the books. He
2: loves the books. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a real young lad thing to do. I seem to to remember. I I did the same when I was a young fella. And um, you will want to know, of course, what is the fastest bird in the world, because the Guinness World Records, at the web page has a little asterisk as well, because you need to know. Because if you're interested in this, you're going to go into this. So it isn't jet engine, Griffin. From <laughs> Wicklow, okay. Funny enough, uh, uh, peregrine falcons can dive at one hundred and eighty six miles per hour, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Wow. There is a faster bird on Earth than that. That's uh, that's an angry one, but that has to be fired out in a catapult
0: <laughs> into a poorly constructed pig's. Um. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> Not sure if that's really in the you know, suitable criteria. <laughs> But the lads are specifically arguing about the fastest game bird. And okay. the Guinness World Records website says the red-breasted merganser would m- be the most likely answer. Red-breasted merganser. Yeah, fully migratory and, and still occasionally hunted. And of course, because this is... Why would you tell me that? I couldn't just stop there. I had no. to look that up. Yes. Type of duck. Oh. Now. duck is a but, super fast bird. Yeah, but there there is... Listen, do you remember I said to you, the guy who holds the world record for holding his breath is 24 minutes, but they're allowed to have oxygen, pure oxygen before it? Yeah. Well, there's a very specific line that says about this incident of the duck flying so fast, because it says, by the way, how fast do you think it is?
0: Okay, so I imagine a peregrine falcon can fly 180 odd miles an, no, an hour. No, that's just so That's what I mean, sorry. Yeah. yeah, exactly. When it is, it has chosen to propel itself uh, groundward at an unbelievable alarming rate and letting gravity help it. Um so I'd imagine the duck is not doing that. So I'm gonna cut it in half and say ninety-six miles per hour.
2: Oh, you're four miles an hour off. One hundred miles per hour. What? Brackets while being pursued by a plane. Close brackets. Sorry? Now, <laughs> yes. We have a lot to talk about here. Okay. There picture it, a plane chasing a duck. Now, first thing to say is if the pilot wasn't called goose, I'd be very unhappy. <laughs> Very, very unhappy. This is an episode of Catch the Pigeon. As far as Catch, I can see. it's wacky races, it is literally yeah. Catch the Pigeon. Yeah, there was a dog writing down how fast the dog was going. going <laughs> <laughs> do, do, do you know you normally feel sorry for you know when you, you hear oh, good, like a plane's engine cra- crashed out or you know dropped out because a bird strike? A bird strike. You kind of yeah. think. Well, yeah, but we started this. But it sounds things. This this was our step one was us. So right. I, I looked this up. At, this is from field and study. So the flight speed of a red breasted merganser in the course of investigating the terrestrial avifauna, which is basically birds. Birds. Avifauna right. is birds. Yeah. Um, in this place in uh, Alaska for the United States Atomic Energy Commission, there's all these low aerial rec- reconnaissance flights on this river. Right, twenty ninth of May, nineteen sixteen. Uh, 1960, sorry, a flock of six red-breasted mergansers flushed from the river, right, so the wind is blowing from the west 20 miles an hour, at the time the ducks were flushed, they were flying east up the river, ducks take flight, all of the birds turned aside except one male, who flew slightly below and ahead of the airplane, so he was quick, but a moron. <laughs> clearly,
1: he's clearly he's clearly an
2: idiot. All the other ducks are like turn Barry turn, and he's like I can I can take this. So, <laughs> I can't run a plane.
0: Yeah, he's a boy racer. Duck is what he is.
2: Yeah, yeah, he had a little blue light underneath them. <laughs> I was going to say gold wing doors, but duck wing doors <laughs> and and a, and a massive arse, so you can just hear the exhaust. So he flies like fifteen hundred feet. In front of this plane, before he just goes and starts losing Eventually, ground, yeah. and he turns aside, airspeed of the plane during the chase, 80 miles an hour to 20 miles per hour wind from the west, added to the 80 miles an hour, airspeed would give the bird a ground speed of 100 miles per hour.
0: Okay, so presumably then, at no point would he be pursued by something that could fly this fast. So he is himself, this individual, Barry, is the world record holder. Barry, like, I yeah. think if I if I have a page and I, I don't think it should be the red Merganser or whatever you said. I think it should be Barry, comma, the Red yeah. Merganser.
2: S- specifically Barry. Yeah. yeah, that would be amazing. He should have been in Top Gun Maverick, shouldn't he? Actually, now you think about it. <laughs> just Maverick flies at the I'm not gonna give anything away, but flies at a remarkable acrobatic, aeronautic scale, and then Barry's just waving at him slightly in front of him. Yeah. It's I'm such still a sp- here. specific incident. Which goes to show you, if we just chase other birds with planes, how fast can they go, I wonder?
0: Well, how can we not apply this to humans? I mean, like, we know Usain Bolt can do the 100 metres in 9.86 seconds or whatever it was. Yeah, but, like, how fast can he do it if, you know there's an alligator poking out the front of a Ford Fiesta, chomping at his butt as he runs in. Maybe he can do it at 9.5. We don't know. Oh, Why man. are we not trying this?
2: The crack you could have with that. There's a scientist listening to this, applying for grant funding as we speak. <laughs> He's currently drawing an alligator on top, riding a full-speed tiger. <laughs> that's, that's that's what we need to do. We need to combine greyhound racing. You know, greyhounds just chase something they want, obviously. Yeah, so yeah. you see bolt and all the other athletes, they're they're not chasing anything they want except glory and you know, infamy. I reckon I could run faster if you had a towerone on a fishing rod.
0: I think you definitely could. Yeah, okay. You would you would you would sprint for a tower
2: <laughs> So that was the first thing. I was housekeeping for part one. I'll tell you gotcha. one other thing quickly for part one. Um main thing I want to talk to you about for this section was domestication. Because okay. the tulips that we're talking about in part two were domesticated and they changed their shape. The Ottomans took them in and grew them in their courtyards. And, what, and, previous, and, to,
0: previous to this, they were just kind of wandering the plains, you know, <laughs> wildly consuming grasses <laughs> as they went on their hunting. Like, I mean, what do you mean domesticated?
2: Well, you, you know, grain is, has been domesticated. Anything that we have used specifically that used to grow wild, I mean, plants can be domesticated, so can animals, it's not just... Okay, so, because uh,
0: you know, so I did, Know that. So you mean that the fact that we grow grain, for example, in perfectly, you know, manicured fields for the purpose of that, yes. that's domestication?
2: Yes, with, with only other grain, for example. Gotcha. Yeah. So, gotcha. so the tulips would sort have of changed um, shape and form. Um, and that's what happens when humans get involved. So we want to talk about Dogs. My, both of us love, love dogs, absolutely God, love adore dogs. dogs. Yeah. I've had dogs since I was a boy. We got scruffy when I was seven. Okay, I was absolutely smitten. And uh, he only went up my admiration when once I got a phone call, I was maybe 13 or 14, I got a phone call from our neighbor. And uh, he'd gotten out of the back garden, mm. the dog, not the neighbor. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was a different neighbor. And uh, he said, uh, hello, do you have a black mongrel? And I said, yes. And he said, Right. Well, he's just rode our bitch and he ate her dinner. (laughs) Right. Now, I'll never forget that dog. (laughs) He limped back into the house, and I always presume that was because he was high fiving all the other dogs (laughs) on the way home. On the way home, yeah. (laughs) So we both love, we both
0: love the door dogs. (laughs) He was on the way back from dog mangoes and he he was
2: (laughs) delighted with himself. (laughs) Uh, Having scored a girl because he told (laughs) her a fact he found in a book. Um, Do you know the way your dog gives you kind of puppy dog eyes? Yes. And you do its bidding. Oh, totally. So that's evolution. What Dogs gradually acquired a new forehead muscle, right? Named, uh, it's L-A-O-M, levator, anguli, oculi, medialis, And have used it to deploy this sad look. So worlds don't have this. This is amazing. So they've developed this because we humans are so
0: manipulatable that they said to themselves, do you know what we need to do? Make a sad face, get more
2: food. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Wow. Puppy dog eyes, you know, kind of that sad sort of look. They're achieved by that muscle raising the inner eyebrows very dramatically sometimes. And then, of course, they look more babyish and, and... we respond to that uh, because we think uh, a child does it or a human does it. They're sad, so we yes. immediately the caregiver thing starts going off in us. So they, they they got this did this study and they dissected six dogs and four wolves, right? All from taxidermists. They didn't kill uh, right, right. any dogs no wolves. Uh, and the dogs have this, and the wolves only have a few little fibers. Right. And then the other difference was was a muscle called the retractor anguli oculi lateralis and then pulls the eyelids out towards the ears less prominent wolves than dogs as well there was the siberian husky which is one of the most ancient uh, breeds Mm. that was the only dog found to lack that r-a-o-l muscle and i wonder what
0: that would do i mean like pulling the eyebrows out towards the ears does that make you look cute or just really weird (laughs) <laughs>
2: okay. I wish people could see that he is currently <laughs> he is putting his yeah. forefingers on his, pull his, eyebrows pull as, his out.
0: It's like as far as I can towards my ears actually it's quite painful I don't know if you don't have that
2: muscle when you saw somebody from Dynasty try, and you tried to figure out how they made their face do <laughs> that after the terrible classic surgery that's what it looks like so not only did this is in the the proceeding, this is the journal the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences so right. once you figure this out then they went, and so, well, they have, they have these different muscles. How did they deploy them? And they filmed nine wolves and 27 dogs. And then they were, they reviewed this, trained uh, specialist reviewed this, and the scientists didn't say anything about what they thought. Right, right. Right. And he recorded the animals making the puppy dog eyes expression and rated its intensity on this kind of scale. And the dogs pulled the face far more frequently than the wolves, And the intensity of the really sad expression was much more in dogs. They've weaponized the look was the phrase. That's incredible. And the fact that
0: they just knew, well, knew, I suppose, but like that evolution knew that by putting this sad puppy dog look on their face,
2: it would be better for the species. So what, what they think probably happened was that, The animals that happened to deploy puppy dog eyes when we Mm. were kind of domesticating them tapped into that human response. And then we kind of favored them. Gotcha. You know what I mean? Gotcha. And and that's our selective breeding pressure. But dogs who are descended from wolves have a different facial makeup than wolves. And that's because of us pretty much.
0: Yeah, we are so weak. That we have created new muscles within dogs because we
2: like cute things. Yes, it is the same impulse. If you're sitting there going, I'd never fall for that. If you have put fake eyelashes on the front of your Nissan (laughs) Micra, so it looks like a face, (laughs) you are one of us who has been manipulated by a dog. It's just a card that's done to you.
0: Or antlers out the windows and a red nose on the front come Christmas time. You know, you're You're guilty. You you're you're are guilty. guilty. You're, you're, the evolution of cars is happening in the same way. They're all going to have those cute eyes and look at us with their
2: eyelashes. I like all our listeners now looking at the dogs when the deployed is gone. I know what you're doing. <laughs> I will not be manipulated. Yeah, but you will completely be manipulated.
0: That's the thing about it. Because like, it's that thing as well. You know when dogs tilt their heads to the side? Yeah. Like they, they seem to grow out of that. Yeah, you no, know, it's a puppy thing because they're just hearing things for the first time. And,
2: like, there isn't anything cuter than that. No, you're just, like, you'll be you'll be handing them the food uh, while they're sleeping in your bed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I, I know what's happening. I'm not happy about this. I've been <laughs> gaslit by a dog here. But you're so cute. You're so cute. And <laughs> um, we are going to talk in part two with Professor, Adjunct Professor Dave McWilliams about that weird, weird idea that one bull could be worth more than your house at a certain point in human history, not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. We'll talk to David McWilliams next. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass We are joined now by economist, author, adjunct professor of global economics at Trinity College and keen, if limited, five-a-side footballer, David <laughs> McWilliams. Thanks for coming
1: on the show, David. Fantastic description. Absolutely, absolutely. Increasingly, <laughs> increasingly uh, reluctant goalie in five-a-side football. Oh, goalie. Yeah, oh. Just, just get you know, just get between the sticks and shut up. You know, I'm, I'm actually graduating to that level of performance. <laughs> That's Fantastic. what happens. You start as a forward,
2: you lose yeah. your pace, you go to midfield. Then your reading yeah. of the game is what they say to you to move to centre half. Then you go on goals, and then you're yeah. basically getting ice cream.
1: Kind of, no, and now I'm trying to pretend I'm kind of as sweeper. It's a sort of a oh, an elevated, okay. uh, but I suspect that it's a one way ticket.
0: <laughs> modern football. I'll be doing the line side.
1: next. You know, humiliation of doing the line. <laughs> It's it's Ederson. It's Alison
2: Becker. It's, I mean, you know, they couldn't use your vision any other way. Um, So I said to Dave in in part one, I said, we're going to talk about a time when a single bulb of a tulip basically cost 20 times the average wage of a skilled worker. And his mind is blown by this. It's considered to be (laughs) one of the first speculative asset bubbles. So talk us through tulip mania. When are we talking
1: about and where are we talking about? We are talking about the year 1636 and 37. That I remember well. 12-month <laughs> period is where it all peaks, where the tulip mania peaks. But so what it was, before we do the history of it, what it was, was a crazy, crazy mania that gripped the otherwise stoic and very, very financially savvy punters of what, what we now know to be Holland, Netherlands, they were the most sophisticated, by far and away, the most evolved financial thinkers at the time. We always kind of think of the city of London to have been the source of finance in Europe. Well, it became the source of finance, but the actual place where it all started was Amsterdam. Mm. So Amsterdam in the 17th century was by far and away the richest city in the world. Okay? And the second thing is, We know lots of odd things. So, for example, Peter the Great went to Amsterdam amazingly. Peter the Great, who was probably the second richest man in the world, okay, went to Amsterdam disguised as a Russian carpenter coming to learn his trade. And he lived in Amsterdam learning his trade, but watching the Dutch for over a year incognito. So nobody had any idea that this was the actual emperor of the Russian Empire. And he went there because... This was in the 1690s, so, you know, 60 years after Tulip Mania. But he went there because the Dutch were so far ahead of everybody else in every sphere. So he went back and he observed the way they built boats. He observed the way they traded. He observed the way they imported foreign brains and talent and skilled workers from all over the place. And he said, we're going to do that in Russia. And he put it in what people know to be St. Petersburg, but it was actually originally called St. Petersburg, entirely Dutch name, okay? And he recreated Holland in Russia, in St. Petersburg. And so that gives you a sense of just how evolved the Dutch were and how far ahead of the rest of Europe and the rest of the world they were. And so if you go back then a little bit and you say, "Well, how come the Dutch were so rich that, and this, again, it's a fascinating story. It goes back to the fact that when the Spaniards occupied or colonized South America, the Spaniards went to South America exclusively for gold, okay? And they believed in this thing. Do you remember this thing, El Dorado, that there was yes. gold? The yes. Yeah. So they were actually, they actually went for gold and uh, they found it. Luckily for the Spaniards, Columbus didn't find it, but subsequent Spaniards, Cortez and those kind of Pizarro found it. And they, basically ended up like the medieval equivalent of a lottery winner. The Spaniards took all the gold back from Latin America and they spent it, okay? Like like as if you'd won the lottery, as if you're a poor person, wins the lottery and you just spend, right? You've never had money before and you spend on everything. And of course, it was the Dutch who supplied most of the merchandise to the Spaniards. So the Spaniards basically got all this. It was like a one-off. They could, nobody could believe it. They got this gold from latin america they brought it back to spain they said this is better crack than working for a living just spending <laughs> this stuff uh, which is what exactly what they did uh, and but like like any country in actual fact like what happened in ireland during the celtic tiger right when you actually end up spending other people's money it feels fantastic right and you feel that it's not going to end, and you buy BMWs and swanky houses and all this sort of thing. The Spaniards just did the same thing, but in the 15th and 16th century. And the people who supplied them with everything were the Dutch, okay? And the Dutch found, of course, spices and peppers, and they brought them back to Europe, and they made a fortune on the trade. They were buying them for half nothing in Indonesia and selling them for a fortune in Europe. So suddenly, you have all this money coming into Holland, and this is about between about 1550, 1560, 1570, all this period. So they're beginning to become this incredible trading nation. And then, like all things, they do all things right initially, and then they start doing things wrong. So right. initially, they all this money comes in. They also do this, and it's a fascinating thing, and it's, it's kind of worth it when you're thinking about Ireland now and this world now. They also open themselves up to all sorts of dissenters. So... What the Dutch did is they realized the French Huguenots, Protestant Huguenots were being killed in France, being murdered in France. Uh, The Spanish and Portuguese Jews were being murdered in Spain. They figured out that these people had very serious commercial networks and they let them all in. So what they basically Ah. did is they took all these refugees, but these refugees that had something, had something different. So basically Amsterdam became full of French Huguenots, Portuguese Jews, Spanish Jews, etc. And all these people had amazing trading networks. And the Dutch said to them, look, you don't have to become Calvinist, right? It's cool, you can do whatever you want, but just make sure that when you're here, you do what you're good at. And what most of these guys were good at was trading because they were good at innovating because societies that innovate tend to be societies that are full of dissenters, right? So dissenting people tend to be the type of people who say, well, I'm going to do something different, I'm going to back myself, all that sort of stuff.
0: Are they dissenting against... The status quo in Europe, or dissenting against yeah. what's
1: what's in the Netherlands? No, against what's up in Europe. So basically, gotcha. they were these were all refugees. So the we're French all minorities, refugees, all, exactly. So it's, it's that idea that immigrants tend to have fire in their belly in a much mm. more aggressive way, right? They also tend to bring new ideas, they bring new networks, they bring new culture, la la la, new connections. So all this is going on this culture. So the money's coming in from Spain people are coming in they're trading with the far east you know they're they're creating this extraordinary society in holland they're the first stock market they're the first central bank the first people to issue joint stock companies they're the first people to have a a legal system the first people to have their own currency that they actually trade all the time so they're complete they're miles ahead of everybody wow and uh and therefore and also people are getting rich they're getting rich on the shares of the dutch east india company which is the Massive company, which amazingly was actually bigger in relative terms then than Apple is now.
2: Who did they owe sixteen billion in tax to? <laughs> who, did,
1: <laughs> who didn't take it? <laughs> was it us <was> again? Could <laughs> the paying right. in tulips? What's going ah, on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the, so the, so, the, so you've got this kind of speculative country because it is a relatively egalitarian society. Okay, considerably more egalitarian than most societies you probably have much more status-conscious snobbery because if you imagine what happens in a really oppressive, aristocratic society, nobody in the middle class emerging can really go up. You know your place. The Dutch weren't like that. So suddenly possessions become much more important, outward suggestions of your position, flash, blah, blah, blah. So all that's happening at the same time. So that's the history. And then just quickly on bubbles and mania is that you should never forget that economics is all about psychology and money is a social tool it's a social instrument right and people behave and you, you guys know this from being on stage you know this from you know people behave very very strangely in crowds people do things in crowds that they wouldn't do otherwise it, 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 there's just crowd psychology and crowd dynamics and the great thing about uh, those economic issues we're about to talk about it's all about crowd psychology Right. So you get the so you get the money coming in, then you superimpose upon the crowd psychology, and suddenly you've got a recipe for something quite quite mental, right? In in a frenzy, and the mentalness is Neil the tulips, right? The tulips, <laughs> yeah. I'm just so intrigued
0: how the how the tulip is the is the item or is the the thing that causes
2: this frenzy or is the focus of this frenzy. It comes from the Ottomans and in, in yeah. Turkey at the time Central Asia. They domesticated it. The Ottomans put it in their courtyards. It goes back to Vienna uh, with the ambassador. It eventually gets to Holland in the in the kind of yeah. early seventeenth century.
1: Neil's absolutely right. So tulip means in Turkish means turban. The word tulip means turban. And it's obviously to do with the with the with the top of the tulip. The Turks call it a turban. And the Turks were Extremely adept at at genetic, actually genetic engineering, original genetic engineering of cross-pollinating all these various different tulips. And so what you had is there was always a tulip market in Holland, and that tulip market was always occupied by buyers and sellers who knew what they were doing, and the prices were going up and up and up. But they were just going up because there was a big demand for them, right? And every year they go up, and then there'd be a harvest and they go down, and everything was fine. And then for, and this is the great thing. It's, 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 it's a bit like lots and lots of speculative manias for no real apparent reason. This is the interesting thing, Neil. Yeah, There's no moment where they say, oh, do you know what? I'm going to put half my wages into tulips. There's no moment you can actually decipher why tulips other than it became a bit like Bitcoin, right? Like Bitcoin is an investment, if you think it is an investment, in an asset with no income, right? So, so Bitcoin doesn't yield anything. So therefore, the only way the price can go up is if you can sell that Bitcoin to somebody else who thinks the price is going to go up even more. So it's not as if there's a stream of income that you can cash in and say, well, I'm going to keep my Bitcoins there and every year it's going to pay me X, Y, and Z, as maybe, for example, a deposit in a bank might pay the rate of interest, something like that. So it's the same type of idea that you buy something that you believe somebody else is going to pay more for it. Right. So this is the the greater fool theory, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's the greater. It's the kind of it's the greater fool theory is this idea that there's going to be a a bigger Egypt than you who's going to walk <laughs> into the bar and pay more, right? Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. That's it. And and that's actually the the fundamental basis of almost all speculative manias, right? What you have by the 1830s or 1630s is the beginning of a speculative idea in tulips, and what you know about speculative manias. What really makes them interesting is when people start to convert and become converts to the story. And the way in which it's like any Ponzi scheme, right? If you talk to anybody who's been ripped off by somebody, there's always a moment where they say, "Geez, I, I really believed him." Yes. And then I told my mate, and my mate really believed him. And then my mate told my other mate, and then he bought them. And there's a guy down the road, and there's a woman down the road, and she bought the tulips for a tenner and sold them for fifteen quid. She made a fiver for for nothing. So there's always that moment where gossip and chat takes over into the herd into the crowd right and the crowd becomes excited and from then the price you know the economists say oh the price is about supply and demand and la 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 the prices and the prices basically gives people the horn right So what you find in in, 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 a, in a mania is that the price actually is what excites people okay and as the price goes up, it's got nothing to do with supply and demand the price goes up and it's the very price that makes us mad. Because the very price has got inbuilt into it the seduction of easy money. And we're talking about, like, some amazing statistics of
2: price. The highest price that they have uh, good evidence for was 5,200 guilders for a single bulb, right? In the winter of 1637, Dave. Yeah. That is more than three times what Rembrandt charged for painting the Night Watch
1: five years it's later. Yeah, no, it's mad. But it's mad. But, I mean, again, this is in In living memory in Ireland, there were the you know the apartments in Bulgaria, yeah that we know were sold to Irish people for a hundred and fifty grand, and we know that Bulgarians were earning seven grand a year at the time right so so those sort of relatives and and of course, what drives it is the idea you know that somebody thought Neil that somebody else was going to pay six thousand guilders, yeah, right. But what's fascinating is if you know if you look like at the moment with GameStop and all those things that went on in the states this year, you've all these Reddit chat boards and things, and you think, oh, that sounds really that sounds really new, and that sounds uh, you know it's a function of the internet and a function mm. you know on the contrary. So what the, the in 1635, 1636, right, Amsterdam and in Harlem. So in a pub there would be pamphlets, right. And there be, there was, there was like speculative groups. They'd all go to a pub. There was also uh, a pandemic at the time. So a lot of people would say, for example, that a lot of the crypto stuff that started 18 months ago, 24 months ago, were people bored at home during the pandemic having a punt, right? Yeah. Uh, just like, fuck it. What am I going to do today? I will have a punt on this, right? Exactly the same thing was happening. There was a pandemic. Uh, there was an uh, outbreak of cholera in uh, parts of Amsterdam and there was an outbreak of smallpox as well. And what they basically did was they, people were sitting around or they'd, they'd be in their little, well, remember that in the pandemic, your little groups of the family groups of five or whatever it was? Your bubbles, yeah. It was the same shit. So they were sitting around bored. And what do you do? And they were so they were saying, well, why don't we involve? So, so the parallels between now and then are, are really, really quite amazing. They
0: really are. And, and also the the psychology of it, like you mentioned at the start, like the that this wasn't a function of supply and demand. This was a function of the excitement of spending with the belief
1: that down the road, easy money was coming. Like you can absolutely yeah. see the crowd dynamics you're talking about. There's a great book called The, the Crowd and Power by a fellow called Elias Canetti. He actually won the Nobel Prize thinking about 1981. And it's about crowd dynamics and how humans, like for example, like, Raves or dancing, or even if you look at rhythm, the whole notion of rhythm—where does it come from? Right, rhythm comes from the fact that no two footsteps are the same, which is quite amazing, right? And that humans—if you ask humans to clap, right—apart from Irish people who obviously can't clap on the beat, but most <laughs> most races can clap, right? and, and and why do we sway? Why do we why do we join? You know, why do we join big gangs? Why do people go to football matches and subsume themselves into this different identity, this collective identity? People go to raves, go to, you know, all that stuff. There is something humans find deeply attractive about the crowd, okay? And the people who stand outside the crowd are usually quite odd and unusual. And the vast majority of us get sucked in. So you take that dynamic. You also take the human obsession, which I think is really fascinating as well. Which is we all want to be able to tell the future, right? So if you if you and, and the thing about speculation and gambling is in effect what you're saying is, I can tell you what's gonna to happen tomorrow. Mm. And, and, and and that is in itself a very attractive thing for humans to know. It's so
2: enticing when you when yeah. you think about it because you're really overriding the logic of like if we think about the nuts and bolts of this you know you buy a bulb it goes into the ground it flowers yeah and then they dig it up and they sell you the bulb you have no idea if it's the bulb that went into the ground you have no yeah. idea if it's a bulb that's going to produce the flowers you just saw you have no idea if it's if if it's they're selling you a different sort of bulb so you really are swept up in all of this yeah. of, aren't you? but
1: you but you know that the guy beside you just yes. made five thousand guilders yes he's <laughs> sitting pretty so it's it's that idea of again you know the, the lottery ad in the uk is it could be you yeah and just think about it even the the whole psychology of it it's like you know we you know that the chances are but the interesting thing about all these manias is that people do make real money in them
0: that's the key isn't it because yeah. i'm thinking back to if you, you get, you get out early enough exactly. yeah you, you mentioned the crypto thing and i know my niece none of my family are investors, right? We're all just like random punters going through our lives. But my niece who was like 22 and actually coincidentally wants to go to college in the Netherlands. This is what she was saving up her money okay. for. She was just on some chat somewhere and some guy said, hey, I'm watching this YouTuber. He says this is the next, you know, cryptocurrency, whatever it was. I can't, literally can't remember the name of the, of the crypto. But anyway, she got in and she put, I think the max you could put in was $200. She put it in and she came over to my mom's house who was her nana? And she went. oh, I put in 200 two hundred euro, and uh, it's now worth four thousand. And my mom was like, "Get you know, typical mammy, get it out, get the money out. It'll, it'll all collapse in a minute." Your mom is right. Yeah, she is absolutely. She said, "Well, I'll do when I go home." So she got on the bus and she went back home to her house. And by the time she had gotten home to the house and sat down at the computer, it was worth twenty thousand. So she pulled her money out. Wow. We all, we all went. Oh my god, safe moon! I think it was called. We all went. So all, all of the family went in. And you can only do 200 euro. We all put 200 euro in. I checked mine yesterday. It's worth one euro and eight (laughs) (laughs) cents. Your niece lives in Davos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But your niece did make. She made the real money. And and, and exactly. And it wasn't as though it was like this thing, oh, it's a long run. She got in, she got out. And that's why we all dive straight in.
1: So so therefore she's the person. So everything it's like it's like religion. Everyone needs a proselytizer. You need, you need a missionary. It's like having the Mormons call around and say you'll be you'll be saved. It's actually the same type of psychology that you're dealing with. Wow. And there's always the evidence of somebody who's done extremely well. What you have is 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 a dynamic. And what's interesting also, if you read the history about that period, you see these sort of quite snooty letters going between a experienced tulip sellers who are citing the fact that all these riffraff are now getting into the market. And uh, this is surely, and basically actually a whole lot of laborers came up from France and got into it. So lots and lots of people, it's a bit like the gold rush. Lots and lots of people gave up their jobs and said, okay, that's it. I'm going to become a prospector, which is actually what happened in America. One of the reasons American uh, wage inflation is very high is so many Americans actually opted out of the labor market because like your niece, they, they said it's much easier to day trade than work for a living, which it is. Yeah. So, do you think that that is actually, you know, you know, obviously Holland
2: are, uh what we're calling Holland now. You know, still was extremely rich in the sixteen nineties for Peter yeah. the Great to go over, and it didn't have a material effect really on the Dutch economy. What possibly freaked the Dutch out a little bit more might have been people, the idea of people getting rich not from hard work, and that not isn't necessarily a Calvinist idea.
1: They had a thing called a wind handle. Right, which means trading on the wind, which they were kind of obsessed by as well. They couldn't really get their heads around. It. I mean, what we've got to realise is we're talking about a generation that was the first generation to ever use paper money. Okay, so the Dutch introduced paper money. Uh, in uh, I mean, William of Orange, for all of the mad stuff he did in this country, uh, presided over quite an unusual uh, sort of revolution in Holland and everything in, in ideas and religion and in finance. So I think, Neil, they were aware that something weird was happening, right? That this kind of, these speculative profits were, were as I said, they were trading on the wind, coming out of nowhere, right? But also, as Dave said, they were aware of it, but somebody was making real money, buying real stuff, you know? And, And then, of course, what you get at the end, of course, is that people are coming late to this, and we saw that in Ireland are putting up all sorts of collateral, and people are borrowing against tulips, and they're borrowing against the expected value of tulips, and they're like they're they're pledging like cows and and sheep and all sorts of things to try and what they call now trade on margin. So look, like, you know, I'll, I'll give you a tenor. If you lend me a hundred quid, I'll give you a tenor in real assets, and when the thing goes up, we'll we'll all be happy together. And so, I mean, what what is fascinating about the tulips is one, why and a nation of very clever financial punters got seduced by a tulip, which, as you say, Neil, has no real value after it withers, right? It's it's the ultimate perishable good. That's the first thing. Uh, Two, how come it got so mental? And three, what's interesting is how come after the effect, after the fact, it had no real effect on the Dutch economy? That's the interesting thing.
0: Yeah, talk to us about the implosion of it then. So it exploded, people,
1: how did it come to an end? On the 20th of February, uh, 1637, it just stopped. This is the weird thing. And this is the, it's a bit like the Irish housing market years ago. People say, oh, there must have been something, you know, something must have happened to make it stop. No, actually, Irish house prices peaked in the summer of 2006. And they started to fall thereafter, right? Right? There was no moment, there was no issue, there was no event, You know, the invasion of Ukraine or blah, blah, blah. What basically happens is that what you have in these speculative manias and these group psychologies is the human brain going through stages of euphoria, of various different euphoria. So at the beginning you start with skepticism and then you become a believer and then you become a missionary and then you become euphoric and then you hit this extraordinary sort it's it's almost like a, like a, like a group trip where everybody's tripping together no one's allowed to wreck the buzz everyone's buzzing so and you this is exactly what happens and then it just wears off suddenly somebody says you know what i think i'll sell and then somebody else says like your niece fuck it i'm going to sell too and then the selling becomes how would you say the selling becomes addictive, addictive as the buying so you go from a strange situation this happened in ireland where you had to Absolutely, everybody was a buyer of houses until nobody was, and then nobody bought houses for ten years here yeah,
2: I saw the uh, an explanation of the timing of us of the collapse okay. specifically framed in terms of sequestered capital, right, so okay. you might explain this, and do you do you buy into that so capital sequestered capital generally speaking, this is my understanding, you are the expert, obviously is quant- capital whose quantities and usages and, and future yields are hidden from the market. Um, yeah. So the underground planting of all these bulbs, they're all underground, and we don't know what's going to happen with them, and they, and they speculate, speculate, speculate. And when they come up and you see, oh, actually, we've more than we thought, that's where it begins to collapse.
1: I, I think that there, there there could be elements of that, right? But my sense is that, having looked at most of these, many of these uh bizarre sort of episodes is that there's no real moment after the event you can say well actually it was this and that but Mm. but what 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 tends to happen is just the buzz wears off and it wears off very very quickly now what tends also to happen is that at the very top of the market lots of people are leveraged right so they've borrowed to buy the stuff right and what happens then if the price falls if you haven't borrowed the price falls, well, you know, it's just, it's just a pain, but there's not, it's not, it's not a crisis. Whereas if you have borrowed, so let's say for example, the things that the tulip was worth a hundred euros, right? And yeah. you borrowed 10, you, you put down 10 in cash and you borrowed 90 from somebody else, right? And then that person, so, so, but you're 10 and the borrowed 90 and the thing was worth 90 makes the thing worth a hundred. And then for example, the thing starts to fall in value. So no, it's not worth 90 now, now it's worth 80. In order for you to pay back the 100, you have to come up with 10 cash, right? And then if it goes to 70, you have to come up with another 10 cash. Mm -hmm. It was 60. So suddenly it works 60, you have to come up with 40 cash. Now, how do you come up with 40 cash? Either you dip into your savings or you sell something else, right? Yeah. And so we get to a situation where good assets are sold to pay for the losses of bad assets. And that's when you get the real panic. And so typically what happens, and you'll see it now in the crypto market, you know, there's all sorts of outfits who are going to lend you to buy crypto, and yeah. blah, 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 blah. And then basically what happens is when the crypto price falls, there's a thing what they call you Neil, know, margin call. So your margin is called in. And yeah. the people you've borrowed say, well, look, the tulip is no longer worth 90, it's now worth 60. You've got to give me 30 in real cash. And most of these people don't have 30. So they've got to sell something else. So you get this sort of like, The ground shifts in the panic and good stuff is sold to pay for bad stuff. And that's when you get this idea that they talk about contagion, where lots and lots of people get sucked into the vortex who really felt they weren't part of it at all. Right. And of course, what you get is then you go from a situation where credit is completely abundant and everybody can borrow to a situation where there's no credit at all, even though the same people have still the same credit ratings. So credit disappears. And once credit disappears, the whole thing's over.
2: I was doing some of the research for this, and you go, when you read that the financial system is beginning to change because of the value of tulips, and you read the sentence, tulip promissory notes began happening in 1636, and they changed, they had a specific unit of weight for tulip bulbs. You're reading, screaming, going, no! It's like when you read American um, history, and you go, to the Native Americans,
1: don't sign the treaty. They don't mean it. They don't mean it. This is not good, lads. And it's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. And it happens, what what, what I find most fascinating about this is the way in which humans never learn. This is the amazing thing. Mm. Like, this idea, you know, you say to your kids, now if you do that now and you do that again, you should learn from your mistakes. And you think that, we, we think that it sounds logical that humans learn from their mistakes, but we don't actually. Uh, we've got incredibly short memories when it comes to finance and money. And I think it's because deep inside we're kind of programmed to be optimistic. I think that's one of the reasons people get out of bed the next tomorrow, for example, is they think in the back of their heads, they go, you know, maybe tomorrow is going to be better than today. And today was better than yesterday. And as we have this kind of almost DNA compulsion to kind of go on, as Beckett says, we go on and on right? And it's the same thing in markets. So people don't learn.
2: You're talking to one there. The only thing I've learned that is applicable to Dave Moore is Dave, you don't know this Dave McWilliams, but Dave Moore has too many sneakers. He has (laughs) like, he's like a footlocker basically. So (laughs) in the research for this, Dave Moore, I found something for you. Oh yeah, The richest man in Holland at the time was a guy called Adrian Powell. And he was so rich, but he actually couldn't afford tulips in the same way maybe that he wanted. So he had a load of tulips in the middle of his garden, and the rest of his garden had mirrors around his garden to make it look like he had more tulips. (laughs) So what you need to do is have four pairs of runners (laughs) and 45 mirrors. (laughs) That's what you need. I hope my wife can't hear that because that is
0: an idea she will be very happy about. You have a weakness for runners. I do. And, and, and David, like, we, we did another episode previous to, to, to talking to you. We did an episode about something called StockX, which is a, a stock exchange for sneakers. And it was dreamt it. up in 2015, 2016 to provide access. And it's it's a billion-dollar company. And it literally allows me to go on and see a market bid-ask-derived price for a pair of sneakers. And I I never meet the guy who's selling me the sneakers or the lady, whoever it is. I just simply send my money to StockX, StockX take the sneakers from the other person. They verify they are what they say they are, and then they give them to me. It's exactly like trading stocks. It just happens to be sneakers. And as our guest, who is the co-founder of the company pointed out, They are absolutely not a good investment. They're they're a terrible commodity because you wear them on your feet. But this is what happened.
2: And tell him the next thing. So we asked him what the next thing was. And Josh Luber said it's going to be playing cards. And he just spent $55,000 on the playing card. And I felt that he was really selling us. And I wish I had talked to David McWilliams before (laughs) I talked to Josh Luber.
0: (laughs) He's now spent $56,000 on the hope that someone will pay $57,000 for a terrible Kobe Bryant (laughs) trading card. Kobe Bryant? It was Johnny Giles
2: in West Brom. <laughs> I have that. <laughs> David McWilliams. It's been an absolute pleasure yeah. to talk to you today. You were a star. Thanks, really, so for coming
1: on the show. that was great. Cheers, Dave. Cheers, Neil. Take care.
2: So, welcome back to part three, Dave Moore. What's that on your screen? I can see your screen reflected in the mirror behind you. You're on Interflora looking for what is this? <laughs> Neil,
0: can, no, can I interest you in the <laughs> daffodil scheme uh, of 2024?
2: You just you buy now, you get rich in March. I I, I will buy www.wordsworth.com. Absolutely. <laughs> Are you the host of the website? Um, How good was David McWilliams? First of all, yeah like
0: to to explain something as complex and as important as that in the way he did is just phenomenal and an amazing guest to have on and do that but what really really blew my mind most about that whole conversation is the fact that it is a psychological thing and not an economics thing that's
2: phenomenal it's really interesting because you look at it and you kind of go well the early days of this it's it's all about who finds out first as far as I can see, lots of these things. You know, it wasn't a, it was a joke, Andy. Who said like if the shoe shine boys give you stock tips, it's the time to sell. You know, yeah. It's like when you're walking on the street in the boom times for Ireland, and you know your average person in the street who isn't involved in that is telling you to buy a flat off the plants in coosie dasi and you go, oh yeah, yeah. And I I think with the people who got in early. There's a certain logic to it. We didn't cover one, a couple of things. One was that a bulb creates offsets, which is like buying a stud racehorse in some, in some ways. Oh, right. So, so in other words, if you get in early, if it's cheap, if it's producing more bulbs, um, if there is a greater fool, well, maybe you never know. So some people did make money on this. But the wider, the wider idea of just getting swept up in the whole thing is really, really interesting. And also people don't know what they don't know. For example... The thing that was really interesting to me in the kind of biology of it all is the ones that were most valuable were not monochrome bulbs. They were these ones that had blotches or stripes through them. Oh. And they were called broken tulips, right? And they didn't know that they were that was caused by a virus, which is a mosaic virus. And actually, they're less robust. They reproduce less. So at the start, it, it starts feeding into the scarcity and starts driving up okay. the price. And so there's all these, you know, that Donald Rumsfeld thing, Unknown, unknown sort of thing. Yes, yes. When you yes, get yes. involved in these sorts of bubbles. Um, but David explained it extremely well. We should say thanks again for coming on the show. David is involved uh, in the doggy Book Festival as well. It's the 16th and the 19th of June. Uh, just, well, it's in, in a couple of days. org for tickets to that. And he always has, you know, the way he drops books, he drops titles of books when he's chatting to you. I mean, yeah. He usually has these authors at that festival. So they're very entertaining.
0: Definitely worth checking out, yeah. Uh, Look, I'm amazed to learn about something that is obviously something that people have known about. It happened in 16, whatever, but I have absolutely never heard anything about
2: it. So, Yeah, it's one of those things that lots of kind of business writers use as a cautionary tale. I like the fact that the Dutch found tulips and created a market around them with new financial instruments. And Ireland found tulips and just used the word as an insult that older (laughs) people would say to you. (laughs) When you were growing up in Ireland, you're some tulip. That was our sum total contribution to that.
0: (laughs) Well, another fascinating guest, another fascinating episode of Why Would You Tell Me That. I'm very excited about what I'm going to bring to you next week. Ooh, what do you got for me? I'm going to tell you about a
2: volcano that gave us Frankenstein. (laughs)
1: <laughs>
2: I really want to ask so much more but I'm going to wait and restrain myself. You have to be myself. patient,
0: be patient. It will be here next week to be honest with you. This is the thing, this is the story you're building up. That that made me think that you and I should do a podcast about incredible things oh. that people don't really know about. This is the one. Oh. And so I have been waiting to bring this story to everybody and I think a volcano that gives us what is now the famous book movies like Ooh. and to be honest with you, that's that's only me breaking down to one sentence there is so much more that this volcano gave us we're going to get to all of it next week I, I
2: honestly i'm so excited you are your own hype man so yeah this definitely. is this is quite impressive follow us on social media like subscribe follow the podcast go to my gigs listen to his radio show talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs> chat to you then